Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. Last fall, I launched the Made Visible writing class to support those living with invisible illnesses, write and share their stories. In our first class, my friends at Health Magazine selected one person from the class to have their essay published on their website. The winner of the contest was my student, Rita Maureen Thompson, who wrote an essay titled POTS as an Illness Causing Fatigue, Rapid Heartbeat, and Nausea. Here's what it's like to live with it. Today, Rita is here to read her essay and discuss what it was like to write and share her story for the first time publicly. Stay tuned at the end of her story for an interview with Rita. Now here's Rita. Sitting on the subway is my opportunity to force my mind out of a state of panic. I can't control what's happening to my body, so I attempt to distract my mind with calming mantras. You've been here before and didn't pass out. Count your inhale and your exhale. I am safe. I am calm. I don't feel safe or calm because the groundwork functioning of my body is unregulated. I live with a condition called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, POTS, a type of dysautonomia or dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. Its most notable symptoms are irregular heart rate and blood pressure that make me dizzy and lightheaded. It's similar to the feeling of when you stand up too quickly and feel woozy, only the woozy sensation is sustained. I often remind myself of how lucky I am that I've never completely passed out like some people with POTS do on a regular basis. Since being diagnosed two years ago, no doctor has been able to tell me what caused my development of POTS or how the symptoms may develop over time. Along with a steroid medication and a high-sodium diet, social coping mechanisms are the pillars of my treatment plan. As we pull up to Queensboro Plaza, an older man with a cane gets on the train. In a moment of panic, I realize there are no available seats for him. Luckily, a kind construction worker stands up to let the older man sit. I scan the rest of the subway car to see if anyone is judging me for taking up a seat. I don't see any looming eyes on me, but I never stop looking for them. I often feel shame about the discrepancy between my external presentation of a young 20-something and my reality of living with chronic illness. My outward appearance is the snow-white to the haggard, evil queen that is my real physiology. It's a confusing reality, and I've coped by labeling my body as a failure and my outward appearance as the potential I can't fulfill. Count your inhale and exhale, I remind myself. Once the subway pulls up to 54th Street, I wait for the train to stop before I stand up. Any jostle from the deceleration of the train could throw off my balance enough to send my butt to the crusty floor. I'm always relieved to get to this station because it has a long escalator that's the equivalent of six flights of stairs. Most of my fellow subway riders walk the escalator to get to their destination faster. I play with my phone for a visible excuse to not be doing the same. 
For unwell people like me, escalators are the staircase version of a hug from God. As my feet hit the pavement of the sidewalk, I try to walk at a pace that blends into the hustle of the crowd. Some days I let people pass by me as I make my way like a baby deer to my destination. But right now, I need to start morphing into her. She's able-bodied, charismatic, and energetic. I try to be this person that I think people see when they look at me. Other people don't see illness, pain, and the labor of existing in this body. I'd rather be who I appear to be. I make it my mission to fake it so everyone, including myself, can bask in the comfort of my illusion. This requires me to suppress my reality through an effortful conversation between me and her. I'm so fatigued. You're fine. Keep up your pace. I don't know if I can lead a group of people right now. They're depending on you. Be professional. I feel so sick. It's not about how you feel. It's about how you make them feel. To others, I'm the lady in Lululemon standing in front of them teaching the ab-burning hundred exercise and talking about the benefits of having strong glutes. I'm a Pilates instructor at a high-end national fitness chain. After teaching for three years, my reputation as an instructor has attracted supermodels and action movie stars, and they come to my class weekly. I look trim and strong, but today I'm not sure I'm healthy enough to make it through my own class. As I step through the front doors of the gym and breathe in the fresh scent of eucalyptus, I immediately look for a bench. Being vertical for any extended period of time allows blood to pool in my legs, which stunts the amount of blood pumped back up to my heart. With my heartbeat racing to compensate, the seated position takes the edge off a miserable cocktail of nausea. A regular student of mine walks by, and I make an effort to appear to be her. Like a verbal high kick, I call out, Hey Mark, I'll see you in class! He smiles, and I wonder if the charade is worth the depletion of energy it costs me. It's seven minutes until the class starts, and I need to make my way to the locker room. Injecting myself with a dose of mind over matter, my feet meet the floor with a hesitant trust in gravity. Once I get to the locker room, I make a familiar beeline for the mouthwash by the court sinks, a ritual for good measure in managing my nausea. I hold a gentle smile on my face while avoiding eye contact with the ladies I pass as the median balance between me and her. Once I cross the threshold into the yoga studio, I'm fully her. I squeeze a magnetic glimmer into my eyes and throw my shoulders back to assume the erect posture of health. Her authoritative voice booms as I address the room. Does anyone have injuries or any other physical limitations I should know about before we start class? A few hands go up reporting a sore knee from a skiing trip, a stubbed toe from a stiletto gone wrong, and a student saying that if her face looks a little green, it's from a new treatment by her esthetician. I muster a validating smile for each of them and express my gratitude for their disclosure. I know how difficult it is for a person to share the intimacies of their health, so I cherish the trust my students have in me. 
I've stopped sharing anything about my own health with most people, even my closest loved ones. With invisible illness comes the burden of not being believed. I was lucky to be diagnosed within six months of the onset of my symptoms, while the average wait time to get properly diagnosed with POTS is six years. With the majority of POTS patients being women under 35 who are otherwise healthy, many of us have experienced the clinical attitude of, you must be a hysterical woman when seeking medical attention. Before I was diagnosed, I had a doctor demonstrate how gravity works to excuse my symptoms. The landscape of my personal relationships also changed substantially in the first year of becoming sick. I learned some people will avoid talking about illness at any cost when some lifelong friendships turn to radio silence. The obscurity and complexity of POTS also caused loved ones to feel confused, so they would re-diagnose me with something they are familiar with. After endless doctor's appointments and labs confirming my diagnosis, a family member suggested out of left field that actually my problem was an eating disorder, unable to believe that the diagnosis I told her was real. These experiences left me believing it would be easier to mostly keep my illness to myself, no matter how sick I felt. I approach each student who reported an ailment to discuss potential modifications during class. The journey to each individual's mat costs me energy I don't have to spare. It's not about you, it's about them. Maintain your grace, I hear from her. I stride to the side of the room until the exact start time of class. I don't want to be front and center any longer than I have to for fear that they will see the weakened muscles and slumped spinal alignment that my industry-required spandex fitness costume can't disguise. I walk to the front of the room and announce, we will begin standing. As 45 bodies rise to stand together, I think about how much they might take the ability to stand for granted. For them, it's just the beginning of their workout. For me, there are days when standing is my maximum physical exertion. In fact, I've been having a particularly bad flare recently, and it's hard for me to stay standing for the 45-minute blast-your-abs-into-shape class. Midway through the class as we complete a side body sequence, it is time to switch sides. My heart races to pump blood back into my head to clear my increasing brain fog. My pounding pulse can't work fast enough, and I can't remember what I just taught. How will I repeat the sequence on the other side? I ruminate and panic. I'm on the verge of being discovered as an incapable fraud. Don't drop your smile and keep it together, I hear from her. Scanning the room, I position myself behind a strong Pilates practitioner. This student comes every week, and I know I can rely on her to remember the sequence. While watching her physical cues, I announce to the room where to position their bodies next. There's a slight lag in my pacing, but I disguise the delay by correcting individual students' alignment. I maintain my authority by tilting a student in the back corner's hips to stack them properly. All of the students nearby also adjust themselves after they see the correction. I make it through teaching class like I always do. I've become a master at keeping my symptoms from drawing any attention. Thanks to my metamorphosis into her, 
I am complimented by sweaty, smiling faces. I feel proud of how invisible I can make my invisible illness. Melissa approaches me in a crop top so yellow it might glow in the dark. She's a regular student standing out to me with her compulsive glances in the mirror throughout class. You look great, she comments. Have you been doing more arm workouts? I'm flattered and mortified. It's confusing that the sicker I am, the more I fit into her prototype of health. On one hand, I'm assured of my convincing portrayal of her. On the other hand, I want to take this opportunity to shatter the one-sided mirror of how she measures health. I want to clarify. I'm sick. I've lost weight, my appetite, and confidence. Please don't idolize an unhealthy body. Don't say too much, I'm warned by her. Instead, I blush and simply say, No, I haven't been doing more arm workouts. Her face contorts with disappointment, as if she still can't find the right tips and tricks to make her body the personification of health. I want to tell her that measuring health by appearance is a myth. When I started feeling sick on a regular basis, I came to a point where I had to decide to either push through everyday life or give up in my dreams for the future. I promised myself I wouldn't live like a sick person. That mentality helped me strive through the belly of my illness at a time when moving into my parents' basement and living under their care seemed like a real possibility. But the promise I made to myself also imposed a sense of shame that it was unacceptable for my body to be chronically ill. For fitness instructors, there's an implication that our appearance is the equivalent of a business card. In too many instances, the world of fitness reinforces the belief that we can measure health by the superficial presentation of weight, muscles, and bouncy hair. My waist measured in inches doesn't account for the faltering of my autonomic nervous system. There's been incredible enlightenment about the invisible struggle of mental health, and physical health deserves the same ventilating grace. We cannot see health. After class, I take my time strolling back to the subway station. The rumble of the subway car approaching the platform soothes me like a lullaby. I'm relieved I made it through another class where my body held up long enough to make a meaningful contribution to my students' day. Because rush hour is over, I have my choice of seats in the car. There's no such thing as a clean seat in New York City, but I choose a spot with the least amount of gum stuck under it. I fumble through my Mary Poppins purse to pull out a salt pill I am overdue for. With a swig and a swallow, I wash her away for now. As the train gains momentum, I think about the nap in store for me back in Queens. For now, I'll keep counting my inhale and exhales. First of all, when we initially spoke several years ago, you were hesitant to share your story. What changed? I think at the time I was really still in like a contemplation stage. It was like a glimmer in my eye of, I want to share my story, but I really hadn't connected with why or how. And I remember after we initially spoke about the opportunity to do an interview, I said to a friend of mine, you know, I think 
I'd rather write my story than be interviewed about it. So the fact that we are now doing this podcast about me writing my story is very funny. Wow, I didn't know that. So why do you think that was the case years ago that you had that moment of like, I'd rather write it than be featured on a podcast about it? I honestly think it was a control element that I could make sure it was in my voice that wasn't edited in a way that I wasn't comfortable with. And truthfully, just writing was more familiar to me. I was a sketch comedy writer at the time. So in terms of storytelling, that was also just something I was more familiar with. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess, you know, with podcasting, obviously things are edited. So potentially your story could be misconstrued, which I hope I never did in my podcast in 100 episodes. But I do think it is possible for that to happen. So I definitely appreciate and understand the need and desire to control it. So what did motivate you to start writing your health story and signing up for the Made Visible writing class? It was a wonderful, perfect storm, I think. You know, certainly the pandemic played a role in that I had started writing more as a creative outlet. Some of the other creative aspects of my life weren't possible because of the pandemic. So I had already started to write more. And I saw that you were running the class and it was just like perfect timing. And it was really appealing to me that, okay, I'm already writing. Inevitably, my health was coming up as a part of my story. And the idea of having social support and structure, like the deadlines that class offers, was just really perfect timing. Do you feel like you went into the class with a goal to publish something to be able to publicly share your story? No, definitely not. I hadn't yet connected with exactly why I was writing. It was sort of just flowing out of me, but I didn't really know its purpose yet. So the idea of being published wasn't really on my radar at the time. It's so interesting to hear that from people because I know for myself, you know, I've been in writing classes for five plus years and always just wrote because I enjoyed it and Mm -hmm. the act of writing and the therapeutic component. And then it wasn't until recent months even that it was like, do I want to write a book? Could this be a book? Is that been the plan all along? And I didn't really know it. So it's so cool to be able to hear that, you know, going through this class and learning from the different teachers and connecting with other students, being able to realize like there's an opportunity here for you to share your story and how important it is for you to share your story. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do think that the speakers, the other authors that we've had in class have been a huge reason for me to connect with my why. It reminds me of Quentin Venny. And he said, uh, a story told is a life saved. And that for me was such a pivot point of, okay, I know why I'm writing. And then more importantly, I know who I'm writing for. And that is what led me to saying, okay, so I do want my material to be read because I know I know who I want to read it. I'm so glad you brought that up. And that's a saying that I put up on Instagram and I have chills every time I hear it and think of it because it's so, so powerful. Mm -hmm. And it really goes to show the importance of sharing your story. I remember when you and I spoke years ago and I suggested you being a guest on the podcast and we had a mutual friend who raved about you, but I could sense your hesitancy and I wasn't going to be the person that was going to force you into this. But I also knew that the importance of sharing your story could really impact someone else's life. So the fact that you've gotten 
to the point where you're now doing that is incredible. So how did it feel to get your essay selected to be published on health.com? It was such a cacophony of excitement and nervousness. You know, I work in the health and wellness space. I'm a health and wellness coach. So I listen to people's health stories all the time. But that had always been my role as being the listener. So to know that this time I was going to be sharing my story, I literally like jumped up from my desk chair and was like, oh my gosh, I've worked so hard on this. It's going to happen. And then just started crying because I'm like, everybody's going to know. And I'm, you know, this is like sense of such strong vulnerability. And so both of those things were such, you know, true reactions and very funny to have them happen simultaneously. My boyfriend was like, should I hug you? (laughs) But certainly it's something I really wanted and know it was such a a great opportunity. So um, overall, incredibly excited. I'm really glad you acknowledged that because I think it's important to remember that there is still that like butterflies in the stomach anxiety of, oh my God, I'm putting myself out there. But at the same time, here's all the hard work that I've put into, obviously, just in living with an invisible illness, but also in writing your story and going, wow, someone sees something in me, someone sees something in my writing, and they want to put it out into the world. That's really special. (coughs) And there's my cough that makes it into every episode. (laughs) What was the process like receiving feedback and edits from the editor at health.com? Did you always agree with them? Her overall feedback, I 100% agreed with, which was to give more context about POTS itself, the symptoms, the treatment options. I think that really did fill out the narrative in the way it needed to be filled out. But I will say it was also stressful because POTS is not something that a lot of people know about. Even some doctors don't know what it is. So I wanted to really do a good job of sharing what it is like. And that gets complicated because POTS can vary so greatly from person to person in terms of its severity, in terms of what treatment plans are helpful. Um, Even for myself, I mean, the scene I write about in the article is actually four years ago, me. My symptoms are fortunately are much more stable now. So it was like walking a tightrope of wanting to accurately represent the POTS community at large. And also on the other hand, I can only really tell my own story and speak from my own experience. Did you feel the need to make it universally relevant? I think the struggles that come with invisible chronic illness just have universal threads. I think whether it's your health or some other aspect of your life, we all know what it's like to appear to be one way And really, our world is a little different than that. Even if it's something as small as somebody uses a vocabulary word and you're like smiling and nodding, but you don't actually know what it means. Like we all have a little taste of that in our life. So I don't know that I needed to work to include that, but certainly the dichotomy of looking one way, appearing one way and really feeling another is a universal thread. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Are there lessons that you learned from the editing process? that you will take into writing new essays going forward? I think just the practice of collaborating with somebody after you've really, I mean, once I submitted the piece, in my mind, it was a pretty final version. So it's just a muscle to work in terms of being flexible enough, being willing, being open to still get feedback, even when you 
feel like it's in a really kind of final state. But there's always room for it to shift and, of course, be appropriate for the publication. And I do think that piece of sharing more about the condition itself, I mean, I initially left out such details because to me, it's so familiar. I know all of those details. So as a writer, it's not popping into my mind initially to share what the symptoms and the treatment options are. But to give that context for the reader is really important in a way, and we talk about this in class too, in a way that's not just a laundry list of symptoms. Um, Because whether you can relate to the symptoms or not, nobody really wants to just read a list of a condition symptoms. So it's a tricky but very important process to write in that you include all of the details for anyone who might be unfamiliar with the condition and also make it very readable. Yeah, because you acknowledge that in writing this, it was certainly for others in the POTS community to know that they were not alone, but also the universal concept of making other people out there that know nothing about POTS, this be an educational piece for them. And I think it's really common for us to write essays and just sort of assume, oh, what I'm going through, you probably understand to a certain degree. But at the same time, the fact that these things are mostly invisible it is really important to extract that information and be able to share those stories so people can get the ins and outs of what a condition is, how it works, what the side effects are, and all of that. And to your initial point, I think what we discussed in class even this week is that while we may think something is final, depending on where it's going, whether it's being published on an online platform or a magazine or even in writing a book, depending on who the audience is and what they're targeting or who they're targeting, it's really important to make sure it sets the tone that they're looking for. So while you may think it's final, it's not necessarily for them. And I remember when you first wrote this piece in class and then it was published and I saw it you know, live, I'm like, wow, this is so different from what it had been. Doesn't mean good, bad, or anything like that, but it's just so different. And it goes to show that all pieces end up having many, many drafts before they get to their final place. So how did it feel to see your writing published when you got that link in your email saying it's live? I was really just overwhelmed with how grateful I was for the opportunity. And I haven't even put it on social media yet um, on my personal accounts. And I've already heard from a handful of POTS patients who have just stumbled upon it. So I'm so grateful that, you know, that why I had, why am I writing it has already been fulfilled. I've already been able to connect with others and gotten that feedback that my article really resonated with them and their experience. So, you know, that happened a lot quicker than I thought. Somebody wrote me just an hour after it was published. So it's just so exciting. Wow. An hour after. That's so cool. I love hearing that so much. Yes. So does having this essay published motivate you to try to get more articles published? Definitely. And I think I will. It was funny because I am a subscriber to Masterclass. And one that popped up in this last month uh, was Robin Roberts. She's on, on GMA, Good Morning America. And she was talking about her decision to publicly share her experience of treatment and diagnosis of breast cancer. And what stuck with her was this idea of making your mess your message. 
And the timing of me hearing that was so important. And I think once somebody connects with that clear motivation and purpose, I don't think you can turn back. So I certainly see myself writing more and more. Oh, that's so cool. And I'm so glad you shared that about Robin. I have to check that out. Thank you so much, Rita, for sharing your story and putting it out there publicly and taking the time to craft it in the Made Visible writing class. Thank you so much, Harper. I hope everybody checks out your class. It really is the best and such a a warm, supportive setting. And thanks for having me. Thanks to Rita and Health Magazine for featuring this important story and continuously raising awareness about invisible illness. The next Made Visible writing class is starting on May 4th. The class is 12 weeks long and meant for people who consider themselves beginning writers who want to write and share their stories. You do not have to have prior writing experience to join the class. If you are interested in more information and want to apply for the class, please visit madevisiblestories.com to learn more. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grisillo for the design.